So we do gather tonight with a bit of a cloud of grief hanging over many of us and our nation over the senseless acts of violence that were committed not far from here in Newtown, Connecticut on Friday. Uh, I don't know if you've been captivated by uh, this story. I'm sure most of us have at one level or another. I know that for me it's been particularly poignant with elementary age children. Um, And though perhaps cliched that when you tuck in your kindergartner on Friday night, it's a little bit uh, unusual and different than what it was on Thursday night. Uh, There's really no escaping the pain of this moment, um, and I guess there's no use for us as a congregation to ignore it in the context of worship either, to just pretend that nothing happened. And there's also no escape of the reality of the challenge that a moment like this actually presents to, to faith, to genuine faith. You know, one headline that I saw over the last couple of days in the news read, Where is God? Question mark. And obviously that's a question that's on many people's minds in light of something like this. And if we're honest, we probably have to say that that question has rattled us too at some deep level over the last 48 hours. It's impossible for it not to at one level when you look at the faces of six and seven-year-olds who no longer are with their families here on this earth because of some act of violence that no one could predict. Why, we ask. Why them? Why now? Why this? I think admitting this is not actually a sign of unbelief. Some might want us to think that that's what it is, but it's rather a mark of honesty in our humanity in the face of genuine heartache and tragedy and suffering. Of course, remaining in that place of of why and what's going on is, is not a place to remain, but it's not also a place to avoid either as human beings. The psalmist in Psalm 13 cries out, How long, O Lord, how long? Or in Psalm 44, 23, the psalmist cries out, Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? In the face of Israel's devastation at the hands of her enemies, God can handle our honest cries. He wants to hear our honest cries, and so we bring those cries before the Lord. You know, the world is a trying and a tragic and a demanding place, and we should never pretend that it's not that way. We've all seen the kind of sterile worship that somehow is produced when we try to escape the reality and the honest look at the world around us. You know, a worship that's filled with fake smiles and fake hallelujahs and everything else that goes into that. But that's not biblical worship. That's not biblical faith. Biblical worship is gritty, if I can use that term. It's honest. It's raw. The people of Israel, they didn't worship God in a vacuum, but they worshiped him in light of the data of everyday life. And they brought who they were as we bring who we are. And they bring what they're going through as we're to bring what we're going through. Our questions and our protests, our emotions, and the world around us, we bring these things before the Lord when we come into his presence, even on a night like tonight. So today it's perfectly acceptable. In fact, it would be almost unacceptable if we didn't come into this place with slightly heavy, heavy hearts because of those who've been bereaved because of the events of Friday. And obviously what happened on Friday is exceptionally tragic. But it's only part of our larger experiences as human beings in a world that is shattered and in life that is shattered by evil and by suffering and by death. From tsunamis to senseless murders to abuse to fraud, each of us perhaps has already been or will certainly one day be touched, sometimes more personally than not, 
by the brokenness of the world in which we live. And how we respond um, to this crisis in this moment on Friday only prepares us more for the inevitable crises that we'll face in our lives in the days to come or have already experienced in our past. So what I want to do tonight, I want to reflect on these things together in light of the moment that we're in as a culture because of Friday. I want to ask, what, what is it that we can say? What's an honest response to something like we've just observed as a society? Obviously, I won't be able to give nearly or to do near anything like justice to the situation that we're in, and, and I'll leave many, many questions unanswered. But I, I want to give a response of some kind and ultimately end in a place that's appropriate for the season of Advent. So I'm going to give you six things. Um, They'll go in two groups. But the first thing that I want to say is that we don't say anything at all. Now that seems kind of oxymoronic since I'm up here talking to you. But in light of something like this, what can we say? Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. You know, a first honest response to Friday and all other events like Friday is to weep over sin and evil and its presence in our world. It's not to say anything. It's to have anguish in our hearts, to have genuine anguish and mourning in our hearts over the events of Friday. As Romans 15.15 says, we weep with those who weep. You know, our first response isn't to explain away what, what took place, It's not to offer some kind of logical account of how all of this makes sense in light of what we believe or what we know, nor is it to say the gushy, sentimental things that have absolutely no grounding in reality and really ultimately don't help anyone anyway. It's merely to mourn, to genuinely let the events that just took place penetrate our hearts in some real way where we're grieving with those who grieve. And we're grieving at the presence of evil within our world, within God's world. We mourn over the loss of innocent life. We mourn over the reality of evil in our world and the wreckage that it makes of people's lives. We mourn all of these things. And that means that we feel, as Christians, we don't just rise above the fray of the world around us. We don't just rise above events like this because we've got a paper due tomorrow. But we feel them. And we face them. And we feel the depth of the despair that others are feeling that we see in the photos that we've looked at on the internet and that others are suffering. We feel those things. That's the first response, is to mourn with those who mourn. The second, and on a related level, we protest the presence and the reality of evil in God's world. When Governor Malloy of Connecticut said on Friday, he said this, quote, evil visited this community today. He was right. We have to call a spade a spade. And he did just that with that comment. This is not just about mental illness or about access to guns, though those discussions are important, but it's about evil. Plain and simple, evil staring us in the face. And the anger that we have in light of something that just took place and that we feel is best directed to and against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers of, over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, as Paul writes in Ephesians 6.12. These forces, 
which are very much at work in our world, though defeated by Jesus on the cross, these forces reared their ugly head in the presence of a 20-year-old man. And we protest this presence and manifestation of evil. And we're outraged at evil as the people of God. But our outrage is not the self-righteous kind of outrage either. It is intense and it is righteous to be angered at the events of Friday. But it's also, our response as Christians is also a, a humble response. And a humble reaction to evil. Aware that even we ourselves cannot escape the evil that exists in our world. That we're complicit in some way in the fallenness of humanity. And it's packed with the devil. So, like one of the most profound things that I've seen in the last two days, the testimony of the father of one of the slain little girls, I'm sure many of you watched it as well, whose statement to the media was absolutely extraordinary. I don't know if he's a man of faith, but I, I certainly wouldn't doubt it. Yes, he is. He did reference the heavenly, his heavenly father in the midst of that. Spoke about his own grief and, and also of his and his family's identification and condolences and sympathies for the families who lost loved ones on Friday, but also included in that statement the family of the perpetrator and spoke directly to them with a kind of humility that it would only come from some kind of identification with the tragedy and the source of that, tra- that tragedy that hit the world. And so our response is to be likewise. A third response in the midst of these kinds of events is to serve. It's to get outside of ourselves and our own reaction and to jump in and to roll up our sleeves. And and that's a response that we see across the board, probably, in light of events like have just taken place. It's also a response that we see um, in in the third century in the church when the Christians were known in the time of the plague, which was killing so many people, to go out and care for their own victims and to care for those who got sick, who were part of the world, the pagan Roman Empire, even when the Roman people would run from the sick people. And would do that at the cost of their own life, perhaps, by, um, by catching this plague. So this response to serve is a response that comes in an honest reaction to something like we see. So those are the first three things. But the second three really come in light of another context. And it's not just the context of the events and the tragedy that we face in this world. But it's that our protest... And our mourning and our grieving and our serving in light of these events takes place in the context of genuine faith. Of genuine faith. It's really easy to let our honesty and our anger and our shock cause us to raise our fists at the God who we think is out there in defiance to him. That question, where is God? Can often lead to that place for many. You know, this was never a move taken by Job, was it? A man who suffered perhaps more unjustly and more extensively than any man who's ever lived on the face of the earth. And yet who said in chapter 13, verse 15, Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. To protest, to be angry, to mourn, and to do all of this in faith means that we reserve our contempt and our rage for evil itself and not for the God who made us. Not for the God who opposes evil and the God who's done something about evil. 
You know, if this is a genuine struggle for you, whether in light of just living vicariously through these events from Friday or maybe perhaps through some other event in your life, perhaps recent or perhaps long ago, then I want to ask this question. Has there ever been another context for faith? Has there ever been another context within which we're called to trust and to, to latch on to a God who's bigger than us and bigger than our own understanding? You know, since the innocent murder of Abel by his brother Cain, faith has been a choice in the midst of inexplicable and unspeakable evil. To shake our fist at evil, yes, but not at the God who made us. The challenge that Friday's events present to our faith in a good and almighty God are not anything new to our world. They never, this has never been new to our world. And yet the biblical response in light of these kinds of realities that we face as humans is to turn to God in desperation and in faith. Yes, with all of our honesty, all of our emotions, all of who we are to bring all of that with us, but to turn to him in faith and in reverence and in trust. And there are three things about this faith that I want to finish this reflection with before you that help us to do this. Three things about our faith, ultimately three things about our God that enable us in moments like this to turn to him instead of shaking our fists at him. And the first thing is that God came. God came. And when he came, he went to the cross. The entire story behind the whole biblical narrative is a story about a God who was willing to enter into the mess of this world, to enter into the mess of evil, to himself become a victim of that evil, in order that he might overcome and do something about the evil that we all face and that wrecks so many people's lives in our world, even up to this present day. The cross tells us that God is overcoming evil and that God is adamantly opposed to evil. Whatever you might think, whatever you might be wrestling with in in light of tragedy or evil in your own life, the cross tells you that the bigger context for your life, rather than the one that you're enduring in this present day, is the context that is declared to be true by the cross, which is the context of a God who is real and a God who is powerful and a God who cares and a God who has compassion and a God who feels and a God who knows what it's like to suffer and who comes in order to, to rescue his world from the kinds of things that we saw on Friday and to have the last word in that world. A God who's not unaffected by the presence of evil in his world, but who's stirred up enough by it that he would come among us. That's what we're going to celebrate in nine days on Christmas Day. He would take this gigantic step to come from a place so high to enter a place so low and then to take an even lower place in the midst of that place so he could do something about the things that we wrestle with and that we protest and that we hate with a righteous hatred and that we saw on Friday. Are you incensed by what happened? Are you angered? So is God. How do I know? Because of the cross. 
He's a God who came. The second thing about this context of our God is that he's a God who identifies with suffering. He draws near to the bereaved, to the lowly, to the confused, to the brokenhearted. Perhaps it's helpful to state that in light of what happened on Friday, God knows both what it's like to die unjustly and prematurely, and he knows what it's like to lose a son, his only son. This is one of the most comforting and wonderful things that the Christian faith has to give to the world, to a world of tragedy and suffering, that God identifies with the suffering. God is on the side of the brokenhearted, that God, God himself, the transcendent one, knows what it's like to be in pain and to suffer and to experience anguish. He's not oblivious to our condition. He's all too painfully, in fact, aware of it. And he's gracious to meet us in our suffering. You know, our reading from Philippians 4 has this phrase, the Lord is near, or the Lord is at hand. And then it goes on to say, now present all of your anxieties before him. Let them be made known to God, the God who is near. Perhaps when Paul says the Lord is at hand, it's not merely an acknowledgement that he will return and be judge over all the world, the good and righteous judge, but also an acknowledgement that he knows what we are going through. That he identifies with us in our grief and in our mourning and in our pain. He knows. He knows. And he's there in the midst of this world. He not only came, but he's here now in the midst of this world to offer us a peace that surpasses all understanding. Right in the midst and in the context of our grief and our anguish, a peace that surpasses every kind of understanding that we could ever hope for. And he can give that peace because of his victory over evil on the cross. So God has come, God is near, and God identifies with the lowly, the suffering. And the third thing is that God is coming. God is coming. And here we arrive at the ultimate thing that we can say in light of Friday or any other event like it. And again, this doesn't answer every question that we have. It doesn't necessarily take away all of the pain and the sorrow by any means. But it does provide a final vision of where we and this world are headed because of the goodness and the love of the God who came and the God who is near even now. You know, the real tragedy of Friday is death itself. Life ends prematurely for 28 people. But the reality that life ends is a reality that casts a long shadow upon all of human life. It's a reality that you and I will one day face, whether prematurely by this world's standards, whether tragically by this world's standards or not. And at one level, Friday reminds all of us of the fragility of life. And of our own mortality. 
And we do well to let an event like Friday remind us that we are not even guaranteed tomorrow. Those families went through their same routines that Friday morning with no sense of what faced them in the rest of that day. But death, for all of its reality and all of its tragedy in our world, is not the last word. It's not the final word. For when God came and overcame evil and its sting, which is death, he also rose again. Death couldn't hold him in its grasp. And in Advent, we celebrate the reality that this Jesus is coming back. This Jesus whom death couldn't hold is coming back to set all things right and to make all things new. And when would we long for that more than in light of what we're facing as a nation and as a society right now in light of what we've just seen and what we've just witnessed? You know, in our Advent devotionals at home, we go through devotionals and follow the Advent lectionary that we're using at Church of the Cross. Um, I always ask my kids, so what is Advent all about? And Jameson's always the first one to answer. And he says, Jesus is coming back. And I said, well, what's he going to do when he comes back? And he says, he's going to make the whole world new and he's going to make our bodies new too. And that's his response. And that's right. Everything will be made new. And so the scripture that I want to draw your attention to in closing and the scripture that I want you to meditate on in light of this event from Friday is this scripture out of Isaiah 25. And I want to read it right now. Because it's a great vision. 2,700 years ago, a vision. That's a lot of deaths ago. A lot of death has taken place between the day these words were penned and today. But here's what the prophet Isaiah said. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. There is a veil that hangs over all the world. There is a covering that is cast over all the peoples. Death is the specter that casts a long shadow. And yet the reality that our God has overcome death and that our God is coming back to wipe away death forever. As 1 Corinthians 15 says that death is the last enemy to be defeated. And then Jesus shall turn over the kingdom to the Father who is all and is in all and is over all. This is our great hope. This is the final word in light of every other word of tragedy and evil and suffering and death in our world. Whether that's in your own life or in your life of your neighbor, or in the life of your country, or in the life of the world around us. This is the final word, and it's a word that death has no mastery. Death has no sting. Death has been defeated. And in Advent, we long for that day. We wait for that day when Jesus, our King, who conquered death, will come and wipe away the tear from every eye. And as Revelation 21 says, and death 
shall be no more. The context for our mourning and our grieving. The context for our protesting and our anger. The context for our serving. Is the context of the God who came. The God who draws near even today. And the God who is coming. To overcome the great specter of death itself. That is our hope. 